This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Anne-Marie Charlesworth, and I am the director of the UCSF Earth Center Community Engagement Corps. I and my co-chairs, Patrice Sutton, Robert Gould, and Nadia Gaber, would like to welcome you to Environmental Justice and Human Health, Creating Systemic Solutions, a six-week mini medical school series co-organized by the UCSF Earth Center, the UCSF Program for Reproductive Health and the Environment, and San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility. With further support by the UCSF Center for Climate Health and Equity, and the Environmental and Climate Health Student Advisory Group. Tonight's session, Structural Racism and Environmental Justice in a World of Pandemics, will reflect on the devastating, disparate impacts of the COVID pandemic on communities of color and examine the role of structural racism in health outcomes and the systemic changes necessary to ensure health equity. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Patrice Sutton, who will moderate tonight's panel. Patrice is a research scientist who has worked with PRE since 2008 to advance evidence-based health protective action on environmental health, science, and clinical and policy arenas. Patrice has over 35 years of experience in occupational environmental health research, industrial hygiene, public health practice, policy development, and community-based advocacy. She is currently program co-chair of the San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibilities Environmental Health Committee. Now, I'd like to turn it over to Patrice Sutton. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much. I um, am so honored to be moderating tonight, and I just want to first begin this um, session by acknowledging the uh, San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility sits on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytosh Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And I also wanted to um, begin by just having a quote from Barbara Lee recently in the um, when there was a new legislation uh, recently put out by her who, uh, this is a quote from our uh, local Congressman Barbara Lee, which said, inequality, systemic racism and white supremacy are at the heart of every crisis we're facing now. The COVID-19 public health crisis disproportionately impacting communities of color, the crises of police brutality and mass incarceration, the crises of poverty, and much more. And I wanna say tonight, we have three speakers who are so um, well-versed to be commenting on, on these aspects of the pandemic. And I first wanna begin by welcoming our first speaker, Michael Bird, um, who has over 25 years of public health experience in the areas of medical social work, healthcare administration, and public health policy. After growing up in New Mexico, California, and Utah, um, Michael received a bachelor's degree in anthropology and a master of social work from the University of Utah and worked as a medical social worker for a number of years before gaining his master's in public health from UC Berkeley School of Public Health. 
Bird is the first American Indian and social worker to serve as president of the American Public Health Association. And he has been involved in numerous projects and programs on a local, tribal, national, and international level. Following his term at APHA, he served as executive director of the National Native American AIDS Prevention Center in Oakland. Bird is the first American Indian to serve on the National Policy Council for AARP. And he was recognized as one of the 75 most influential alumni by the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health in 2018. So it's with really um, great privilege and honor that I will um, leave seat the floor to Michael. So thank you so much and welcome Michael. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, this opportunity to share some thoughts with you. Um, I also, um, uh, I, I feel like uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee Lee's comments um, are right on right on target, and uh, I think um, what I'll be sharing with you today really um, sort of elaborates on on that history. Um, what I what I would say in 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 titling my uh, presentation, uh, I don't have a PowerPoint, but I I, I I was thinking of a title. The appropriate title, uh, from my perspective, would be uh, "Old Roots, New Weeds." Um, and, um, and, and from that, what I'm attempting to reflect really is the fact that, um, for me as, as, um, an indigenous person, as a, as a member of Kiwa Pueblo in New Mexico, um, you really have to, and as someone whose people have been here, uh, 10, 20, maybe 30,000 years, um, or as our traditional leaders would say, since time immemorial, um, what I think uh, most indigenous people, most native people would approach anything like this really from a historical context. And what I attempt to do um, in, in much of my approach is really to look at, critically at the, at the historical context in which we operate. And, um, and from, that, from that sense, um, you know, for some people, um, uh, this... Um, this, this new world, which was not new to anyone who'd been here uh, 20 or 30,000 years, it was only new to those who, who, uh, who, who were searching for actually India and ended up um, in, the, in, 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 in the Americas. But um, the, the, what I think is really critical, and, and much of my, my thinking has been shaped not only in terms of my, my culture and my tradition, but but really uh, based on the work of, um, of uh, Richard Drennan in, in, in a text, uh, Facing West, The Metaphysics of Indian Hating and Empire Building, along with um, uh, drawing on uh, Dr. David Stenard, American Holocaust, uh, and more recently, um, a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, book that I'm reading right now, uh, titled The History of White People, by Nell uh, Painter, which is an incredible, um, it's an incredible piece of work in terms of an analysis of 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 of, of this of the history uh, of this of this nation um, as it, as it relates to Anglo, um, primarily Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, population. The 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 analysis that I that I that I utilize really um, is is something unique happened. Um, 
in, in, when, when two worlds collided, when Europeans um, first set foot in the Americas, um, you know, the Spanish and, and French and the British um, and, and these populations that, that, that set, set foot on what they termed the new world, um, you had two worlds that collided and you had two populations and communities that came in contact. Um, obviously, the native population and, and the new, um, the, the, those, those people new to this land, the Europeans. And um, what, what I have concluded really, and I think is part and parcel of, of, and of where we, we are today, really is a reflection of that, that, that first contact. Um, and, and for, for Europeans, um, coming in contact with, with native people, people that, um, that, you know, I, I believe it was the Catholic church really that, that saw them as having no, no souls and not really even being human. Um, they, the, they, the new, new, new people to the land defined native people as, as savage and non-human. Um, they also define nature um, as something that was wild and needed to be tamed, also used the word savage and, and infinite. And, um, and out of that, I, I really believe that um, that really provide, that has been sort of the basis and a framework um, which has been foundational to this, to this nation. Um, but also when you define something um, the, the, the flip side of that is you also define yourself. And um, so while the earth was defined as infinite and needing to be tamed and, and native people were defined as savages and, and needing to be eliminated, um, um, the, the, the natural world um, took on a definition uh, the the new the, the people new to this land um, also by, by the act of defining someone defined themselves in the way that they related and saw those 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 new elements to their world that they had never encountered before um, and foundational to this to this nation's history is is a history of genocide and and theft of native land. Another element that I think is key to that, 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 was, that was key to that experience and that foundational, uh, those foundational elements was, was in fact slavery and the enslavement of, of African-Americans. And those two um, um, sort of planks in, 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 in this nation's history um, have continued to um, to play out, um, and and we see that we I mean we see that very much so um, in 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 our in our country today, and um, and much of this history is clearly well documented, and um, and it really has been in 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 many cases um, really what we'd have to say. Uh, at, and from a native perspective, has really um, been um, sort of a model um, that that racism has been a 
major that made racism has played a major major role and and an exploit exploitive model not only of people but also of of the land and the environment and um and not not being not not being cognizant of the fact that um um the world in fact is and 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 nature uh and is is in fact a living entity um all life comes from the earth uh we are critically dependent upon clean air clean land clean water and um and it's something that um that i think there's been a um an alienation that many people have been alienated from an understanding of the natural world and the importance and the critical aspect of balance and respect and for native people that really has has called into play um um that the earth in fact is our mother and our mother gives us life and sustenance and that um that um if we're not respectful of in fact that 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 relationship we in fact um end up in in this in facing the circumstances in in terms of environmental uh consequences that we are now uh that we are now and have been dealing with um i think that um that the the important um this this is being i mean much of this is being uh reflected in 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 the reality of today and i just share one quote from from um um a, a recent report um public policy in the trump era a lancet foundation report that just was was published a a month ago in which uh richard horton the editor of the lancet had this to say he said the covid pandemic has shown how woefully inadequate the country's healthcare and public health systems has been in protecting the nation's health um and he go- goes on to also say that you know that w- the US life expectancy has diminished uh 3.4 years in relation to the the G7 the rest of the G7 nations well what does this mean for um marginalized uh and american indian african american and uh mexican american and other marginalized communities well if it has if it has impacted the general population when you look at our communities communities who who in the case of american indians um has has the highest pre covid had the highest mortality and morbidity rates of any community and, and a population that has a government to government relationship not just a racial ethnic re- relationship but a nation um and a population that 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 has a government relationship because we are citizens uh, uh of our own tribes of our own pueblos and our own nations um when we in fact have had 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 um had those conditions pre pandemic what does what does covid now mean for us in the longer run um i think that um there really needs to be in 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 the world today we really need to have uh what other nations have engaged in and that be it south africa um in in their truth and reconciliation process 
be it Canada, and, and it's addressing issues of the Aboriginal First Nations native people of Canada and a truth and reconciliation process really need to be, I think, looking at some sort of process that brings us together, that allows us to have a dialogue and conversation that has not taken place in this nation to this day. Uh, I, would, I would not limit that. I don't believe that it's limited to just native populations. I think African-American community and other communities of color who've been part of this, this American experience also need to have a role and be represented and be part of this conversation. I know that, that uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee has, has, uh, has made remarks to that effect. Um, as well as a number of other national leaders. But I think that until we really um, understand uh, what it is we're dealing with in this legacy of racism and oppression and marginalization, uh, we will really never really get beyond this point. Um, and I believe that much of what we're dealing with is, are the consequences of, of those, I guess that, that misunderstanding, that hate and that anger and that frustration. And um, we, we will really never, we're not gonna, we're, not, we're never gonna get out of this. When you're in a ditch, you, you really have to get, you have to step back and say, well, how did we get here? And what is it we need to do to get out? And, um, and, um, and I guess um, I'll just, uh, at this point, just, uh, um, close with one last um, quote, and that's by Stephen Hawking, the British astrophysicist. He said, intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. And I would tell you that if, there, if there's a population that knows anything about dealing with change in the past 500 years in the Americas, it is Native people, because we have dealt with every kind of imaginable change both good and bad that any people have on this planet. Thank you, and I appreciate your time and your attention and um, look forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, and I think that your title of Old Roots and New Weeds is really the perfect um, beginning for this conversation tonight, because the whole point of this whole series of webinars was really to look at more root causes and um, of these issues and try to think about um, your points essentially about how do we get an honest accounting and a history um, told and in order to move forward is I think exactly the right starting place. And so now I have the joy of introducing Judy Young, and um, Judy is Executive Director at the UCSF National Center of Excellence in Women's Health and has over 30 years of experience in women's health in both academic institutions and community organizations. For over a decade, she has led UCSF's Young Women's Health and Leadership Programs, where under her leadership, UCSF partnership with the San Francisco Unified School District and other community organizations deepened. And since then, 
over 3,500 young women have been inspired and expanded their vision of their own possibilities. That's an amazing accomplishment, Judy. She has been the co-chair of the UCSF Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences Diversity Committee since its inception in 2013 and a valuable resource to faculty, staff, and learners. She was invited to be an inaugural member of the Executive Advisory Board of the Differences Matter Initiative of the School of Medicine. And for her contributions to UCSF and beyond, Judy has been recognized with the 2010 Chancellor's Award for the Advancement of Women and the 2017 Chancellor's Award, Martin Luther King Jr. Leadership Award. Thank you so much, Judy, for being with us tonight, and I will turn the floor over to you. Well, thank you so much, Patrice, and thank you all for inviting me. Okay, well, I am delighted to be here to talk a little bit more about, about this work. And I really do appreciate uh, Michael's introduction to us thinking about old, um, old roots, new weeds, and really the foundation you set for us about the, the, the history of this country um, and the, um, the long history of genocide um, and theft that this country has had and the history of enslavement. Um, the, the genocide and theft of native uh, from native people and the history of enslavement and and how that plays a role in what is happening now how that is still happening and um, and that we need to be thinking about that talking about that and I think that the uh, conversations around truth and reconciliation are much much overdue and so I appreciate um, you setting the context Michael and I think so there's threads through what I will be talking about as well. Um, I wanted to just start off by, by um, you know, the focus of my work that now that I've been doing has been focused on Black women as the co-director of the Black Women's Health and Livelihood Initiative. A lot of the work that I focus on is around uh, Black women's health. And I come to this conversation really from that point, and I just want to center myself and center you in how I, how I show up in this work. Um, I come to this conversation as a daughter, a wife, a sister, an auntie a healer, a friend, a leader. And I bring my voice to this work and I'm bringing the voice of many others who are no longer here. So the, the screen you see pictures of me and many of the people that I care about and um, some of the people that I work with. And I just think it's important to just center myself into this work and to share with you that because it's such an important piece. There's a, a little picture of me, of young Judy down there in the corner. <laughs> So, um, and that is, that's really important to me because it's not just the, it's the, it's the personal piece of the work to do, that I do that I bring to this and it's the professional part of me that I bring to this. And um, so it's, 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 and it's for my community and it's as well as it's for myself that I do this work. At this time in our nation and in the Bay Area, black women continue to be the largest cohort of marginalized women whose lived experiences marred by poor health out outcomes and interactions with healthcare institutions. Compared to white women, black women are more likely to die in childbirth, to experience a lower likelihood of breast cancer diagnosis, but more likely to die from it, to experience higher rates of type two diabetes and heart disease, and to experience a lower overall life expectancy. And while it's a fact that access and poverty are large factors in healthcare disparities, and black women are disproportionately poor in America, it's been shown over and over again in research 
that even when access and social economic status are the same, black women still fare significantly worse than their white counterparts. This problem is not just about poverty or class. College educated women have worse health have worse healthcare outcomes than white women who have just finished high school. I wanna share with you a few stories. Shalon Irving, you'll see many of these pictures. Of, I'm not gonna share every story on this frame, but Shalon Irving, highly educated epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, died shortly after giving birth because her providers did not believe her despite multiple visits over several days to a highly respected medical institution. Dr. Susan Moore died from COVID weeks after being discharged from the hospital after doctors refused to adequately treat her pain and symptoms. Kira Johnson, a wealthy black woman, daughter of a well-known TV personality and judge, bled to death just hours after giving birth at one of the premier hospitals in California. When no one would listen to her and her family, when they stated she wasn't feeling well. Amber Rose Isaac raised concerns about her care and died in April, 2020, four days after a cesarean section that went wrong. Henrietta Lacks, her cervical cells were taken from her for research against her consent while she was receiving care treatment at a well-known institution. She died at age 31 while her cells are now known as the HeLa cells and are the most important cell lines in medical history and are still being used worldwide, neither she nor her family have benefited from this discovery. On this slide, you also see Sandra Bland, Brianna Taylor, and Erica Garner. These rep represent just some of the faces and some of the stories, and certainly not all. For many of these women, increased wealth and education were not protective, nor has it been protective for countless Black women like them. Black women are not listened to, and the consequences for us are not trivial. They are deadly. While the circumstances around these, de these deaths of each of these women may be different, the actual underlying cause is the same. Racism. Racism within our systems and institutions. And we're talking about health equity in the health system, Racism is within all of our systems and it's interconnected. Racism is a public health issue. Data collected about black patient experience from various sources nationally, including surveys, focus groups, interviews, document themes, including racial stereotyping from providers, lack of respectful treatment and coercion to select certain types of treatment. The COVID pandemic has done nothing but highlight those disparities and these types of treatment. In fact, it's made it worse. This type of treatment described is grounded in centuries long systemic racism in healthcare and attempts to control black people's care and in fact reproduction since 1619, the year that enslaved Africans were first brought to this country. I wanna pivot and talk a little bit about solutions. And this is where the opportunity for truth and reconciliation that Michael talked about comes into play. The Black Women's Health and Livelihood Initiative, which I'm co-director of, was founded at UCSF to address health equity for Black women in our healthcare system. We envision a world where Black women are valued and nurtured the same way that Black women care for others. 
we prioritize and amplify the voice and power of Black women at UCSF and beyond to achieve their optimal health and well-being at home, at work, and in their communities. We do this by addressing health and wellness through all of these six pillars that you see here on your screen, through justice and equity, health and wellness, community building, leadership development, construction of knowledge and research, and education. We develop programs and resources and um, initiatives in all of these different key pillars. That's where our work is. Grounding our work are our, our um, core values. We center Black women. We partner with Black women. We demonstrate that Black women's lives matter. We engage with our community allies and we're led by Black women. I'd like to share with you two specific examples of the way that we are working, two specific examples of our work, which we're working to achieve health equity within our systems, just to make it a little bit more concrete. One example is a project that we've done, did with, in collaboration with many others, and it was the San Francisco Reproductive Justice Summit, Black Women Know. This is a collaboration between the San Francisco Department of Public Health, San Francisco Health Plan, Anthem Blue Cross, the San Francisco Unified School District, UCSF Preterm Birth Initiative, the UCSF National Center of Excellence in Women's Health, and the Black Women's Health and Livelihood Initiative. We worked for actually a couple of years to develop this, this summit focused on reproductive justice. And the goal was to challenge the prevalence of anti-Black racism within the San Francisco healthcare safety net system to develop actionable recommendations to improve racial equity and cultural responsiveness in the provision of care. Reproductive justice is a concept that was developed in 1994 by Black women in response to the reproductive rights movement's narrow focus on abortion access that excluded Black women and other people of color, low-income individuals, LGBTQ people, and other marginalized groups. This framework is grounded in human rights and it was de defined as the right for all humans to maintain personal bodily autonomy, to have children, to choose not to have children, and to parent their children in safe and sustainable communities. So in doing this work, what was important to us was making the commitment to making Black women's voices heard and seen in all aspects of planning, especially in the content development of this summit. We made an intentional commitment to making sure community voices and youth voices were heard as well. So the participants were half community and youth and half providers. In order to make sure that we had fair uh, exchange of knowledge and information and experience, we made that commitment to make sure it was an equal distribution of, of um, participants. And not only that, to make sure that community and youth could actually participate um, frequently when people are invited to come to a summit, uh, pro providers can pay their way or providers are, are, it's considered part of their work. But community, it, it's not the same. So we made sure that we provided stipends for community to participate. This was a three-day summit, three half days. So we provided stipends to, for community members to participate all three days so that they were not losing money by taking time away from work or if they needed to pay for childcare or other ways to be there, they were actually able to do that. 
So stipends provided for all community members who are interested. The partnership with the San Francisco Unified School District allowed youth to be present without missing time from, from school. They were actually able to be there and it was a commitment to them. To, it was an opportunity for them to be there as a part of their schoolwork. And that was another important way that they were engaged. The recommendations that come out of this work, we spent several days and several workshops making sure that we had recommendations. And so the recommendations are now being analyzed. We're in the process of getting that data. And the plan is to have a couple of pilots that come out of this that will be piloted at um, clinics locally. And then once we gather that experience and on all of the recommendations, we'll be disseminating to our community members and to um, participants at the summit and to leadership at uh, San Francisco Department of Public Health and to UCSF and to all of our stakeholders. Um, the goal again is to provide recommendations on how we can make changes to dismantle some of the systems that have been harmful to community members. So we hope that we'll do through all of these kinds of conversations and prioritizing the voice of community and youth, that we will have learned what to do. We will pilot some of those recommendations and we will learn how to do things differently and we can make some changes within our system. The second example that I wanna share with you is um, one that we're currently working on and that is the Black Women's Patient Family Advisory Council. For UCSF to be successful in its commitment to eliminating health disparities and anti-Black racism, it must, commit, it must create sustainable infrastructure that welcomes and engages and responds transparently to honest input of Black women advisors who can represent the most, those most impacted by care inequities at UCSF and in healthcare more broadly. Our Patient Family Advisory Council will provide input to the UCSF and make sure that uh, voices are, uh, who, who haven't been heard will be heard. This will help reinforce transparency and rebuild trust among community builders, among the Black community and the health system. This again is another opportunity for that truth and reconciliation that Michael was talking about, where we can share information. We will develop systems of accountability between the, between the advisory group and the administration so we can talk about what those recommendations will do and how they will be carried forward. Community members will be paid for their time and the, the power structure of the advisory group will be shared. So there will be a community member as the leader. There will be somebody representing um, the Black Women's Health and Livelihood Initiative. And then there will be a, a, um, a leader also from the UCSF health system. And that way those recommendations will be um, uh, more likely to be uh, embedded into the health system. And so we, we hope that this is another way that we can demonstrate that uh, we are listening to community members, we are investing in our community members, and that we are integrating um, ideas and, um, and thoughts back into the health system based on what community members are interested in. Finally, with this, with this idea, we also plan to provide health education to the community based on by some interest and, um, and desire. And so that's just a couple of examples of some of the work that we are doing at the Black Women's Health and Livelihood Initiative. We have other examples, but I will share that for Q&A or for other opportunities. And I just wanna thank you for your time. I will close out here and leave opportunities for questions coming up. Um, and I thank you for inviting me.
Thank you so much, Judy, for such an inspiring um, examples. And I do hope that we can hear a more, um, more examples in the Q&A um, about uh, also in terms of even um, you mentioned among many things, um, the power structure and the sharing of the power structure. So that will be particularly interesting to hear more reflections about that since um, it's, it's so much about power. Um, thank you so much. And our next speaker is um, Dr. Linda Ray Murray. And Dr. Murray has been a voice for social justice and health as a basic human right for over 50 years. And I just want to say, as a member of APHA, from the very first APHA meeting I ever went to, Dr. Murray was always there inspiring me. <laughs> and so I, my vision of public health has been so framed by just having a yearly opportunity to hear Linda Ray Murray speak. So I'm very indebted to Linda. She has spent her career serving the medically underserved. As a physician and public health professional, she has worked in a variety of settings, including practicing occupational medicine at a workers clinic in Canada, Residency Director for Occupational Medicine at Merhari Medical College, Bureau Chief for the Chicago Department of Health under Mayor Harold Washington, and the Medical Director of a federally funded health center, Winfield Moody, which was served the Cabrini Green Public Housing Project in Chicago. Dr. Murray plays a leadership role in many organizations, including having served as president of the American Public Health Association. Dr. Murray has received many awards, including the Daniel Hale Williams Award from the Cook County Physicians Association and the Distinguished Service in the Health Field Award from the National Association of Minority Medical Educators. Since her retirement, that's kind of a laugh, Dr. Murray is devoting the rest of her career, as she puts it, to being an enthusiastic full-time troublemaker. So um, I will let Dr. Murray make good trouble for us tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. I'm so happy to be here tonight. I want to thank my sister Judy for really laying out some of the critical issues that we as Black women face. And I'm always honored to share a platform with my brother, Michael Byrd. Um, and in fact, I wasn't going to show slides, but he made me do it because he mentioned the book and he reminded me that that's an important thing that we need to do. Um, so let me start off with, with Brother Malcolm. I, I want to concentrate, if I can, uh, before we go into our discussion on what we mean by structural racism. For those of you that, that practice uh, clinical medicine or are social workers or, do, or teachers that do any kind of thing that relates to individuals, this question, why are some people healthy and others not, is really the fundamental question that we face as, as practitioners when we're trying to do social change. We've had a land acknowledgement, but I wanted to put, keep, put, stop on this slide for one second. The actual problems that we face at, when we steal land from indigenous people are with us today. This is the entire hemisphere. And so be very clear that the people that are being impacted by climate change, the, the cause, underlying causes for immigration, people being fleeing countries, uh, is still going on because land is being stolen from our indigenous people on this hemisphere and around the world. This is what I wanted to make sure that I included some books. I'm gonna recommend uh, Roxanne's book. It is a high level summary of uh, indigenous history in the United States, uh, simple, easy to read. And I also wanna recommend Paul Ortiz's book that, that looks at African-American and Latinx history uh, together side by side. So what do we mean by racism? This is what, what uh, Kamara Jones suggests would be good 
definitions that racism is a hierarchical system that's designed to support white supremacy. It's a system that unfairly advantages some people and unfairly disadvantages others and saps the strength of the whole society. That unfairly advantaging some people are what Americans have trouble uh, talking about. Uh, I, I want to remind us that anti-Black racism in the context of the world plays a critical role, but racism, as we've unfortunately seen uh, last week in Atlanta, it's not a binary issue. It's not just Blacks and whites. It's an issue, it's a hierarchy that includes everyone in the world. Um, I also want to be clear that in my mind, the history of racism and capitalism cannot be separated. They grew up together, they're intimately intertwined. This is a quote, which I won't waste time reading to you from uh, Du Bois, really the finest social scientist uh, of the past century, um, where he argues that racial capitalism is what allowed Europe to conquer the world and, and have the kind of economic uh, success that they do possess. So we know in healthcare that health status is determined in large measure by class and by race, but they operate separately as Judy pointed out that black women, for example, with college degrees fare worse often in health status than white high school dropouts. This is a picture of Sister Jones. So when we talk about structural racism, I wanna be clear, we're not talking about uh, what language people are using. We're talking about a system that's baked into the country baked in by history, baked in in our, in our whole policies. And when we think, when I think as a doctor about what makes people healthy, what, what causes that little black box on the right there, I think, yes, some of the intermediary factors are there. Do they have health insurance or not? Do they have a good doctor or not? Is the doc, are the doctors and nurses listening to people? Do they, can they get to healthcare? All these things are important, what we call the social determinants of health. But even underneath the social determinants of health, are the structural determinants of health. How do we rank people? How do we allot resources? Do we pay attention to racism? Do we pay attention to gender discrimination and social class? Do we have a system that allows people to vote? In this country, we don't. Um, do we have an economic system that when there's a pandemic, people don't starve to death? Do we have a system that has guaranteed sick days? So these structural determinants are the profound drivers of the health of individuals and populations. Uh, and, and we also cannot talk about structure without talking about oppression and power. That's why George Floyd's murder resonated around the world because people around the world, whether it's in Palestine or uh, in Mexico, understand what oppression means and what power means. So let's look at structural racism. Take a second for a commercial. This is from the Legacy Museum in Montgomery and the Lynching Memorial. If you go through Alabama ever and you're sort of halfway near Montgomery, take a day and go there. So I, I show this to, to my younger students so that they have a clear notion of what history means. I just arbitrarily picked 1619. Actually, the first slaves were brought here in 15 something, but we won't, we'll, won't worry about that right now. But you can see here, 61% of the time we've been on this continent, on this country, has been spent in slavery. And you can see the percent. So it's only a tiny percent, some 56 years since the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Let me put this in plain, in a, in a better way where you can understand it. When I was a little girl, I met, and they held by hands, people who had been born in slavery. I'm 72 years old now. So I actually have touched 
the hands of people who were enslaved. That's something that my son and my granddaughters have never done. So slavery is really not that long ago. And it's important that we remember that. The other thing that's critical that when we think about what's going on in this hemisphere and in the world is that we understand this basic historical, this is a picture of the transatlantic slave trade, only about 5% of all the people stolen from the continent of Africa that were enslaved ended up in the United States. That means 95% of them ended up in other parts of the hemisphere. So most people in the world who are African-Americans, that is to say, who are from the Americas with slave ancestry live outside the United States of America and they speak Spanish and Portuguese. Nell Painter's book that, that Michael pointed out, but I will tell you this, when our last president was elected, I said, I have to go back and reread. I have to go back to basics. And so I went back and read Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. If you've never read it, you need to read it so you can really understand what happened January 6th and what's going on now. And you can't understand white supremacy and white people if you don't know really history. So reading Nell Painter's book is, is an excellent start. Let me give you an example of how insidious this problem is. This is Joshua Knott, a famous American a physician. He was pro-slavery, but uh, he was really a, a renowned physician. You can see his comment about Negroes being uh, subhuman. But this is a medical finding that existed in 1849 that was looking at reproductive problems that women have, reproductive problems of women, white women, and slaves, enslaved women. So you can see, that. and you can see both for miscarriages and other reproductive problems, the slave women did much worse. Now, this created a paradox because the notion was that Africans were meant to be slaves. We were subhuman. We thrived as slaves. It wasn't wrong or cruel to make us slaves. So this question comes up. Why do we see this difference in health outcomes? Is it because of the conditions of slavery or is it some constitutional in other words, genetic or other factors for people who were enslaved. And this is what the article says. It actually, it's a, it's a great article. Uh, if you re can read it carefully today. And it basically says, is this problem we're having because in slavery, people ha are exposed to have exposure to the elements, they have violent exercise, they have to do hard work or some other reason. And then you can see in red their, their conclusion. So these scientists concluded that the reason there was this difference in outcomes is because of the unnatural tendency of the African female to destroy her offspring. This same dilemma exists today. That's what Sister Judy was talking about. Why is it that the birth outcomes of college graduate black women are worse than high school dropouts? And when you ask people why, they always come back to some nonsense about conditions of, uh, of African women, of Black women, as opposed to conditions of the society. So as <clears throat> Michael talked about, when we talk about immigration, we have to be honest and say what we really mean. We are a nation of immigrants, yes, but we're not a nation that's been nice to immigrants. This, this is uh, just a map of the uh, seizure by war of the top uh, third or half of, of Mexico, um, and uh, understanding that uh, this Texas was declared a republic because the Mexicans did not want slavery in Texas. They didn't mind having the white people come in, but they said you can't have slaves. But, you know, our folks, they believe in white supremacy and they brought slaves in. 
Um, and here are some Mexican-Americans lynched. And so this is an important history that we don't teach. Most Americans know a little bit about Black people being lynched, not as much as they should. But in fact, during the same period of history, when African-Americans were lynched because of white supremacy and to keep control of us, Mexican-Americans were being lynched in the South, in Texas and the Southwest at the same rates, in the same proportions. And other people were being lynched too. We'll get to that in a second. So that when, when you look at a picture like this, I don't know what you see. What I see is an echo of my history. I see young people fleeing terror. What do you think happened when 15-year-olds fled from Mississippi to Chicago or Cleveland or Pittsburgh fleeing terror? The same thing that we see here fleeing across our Southern border. So, and we shouldn't forget that the, one of the largest human migrations from terror was the migration of some 6 million conservatively black people out of the Confederacy, out of the old Confederacy. Here in the upper right, the largest mass lynching that existed in the United States of America, let me say this again clearly, the largest mass lynching that has existed in the, our nation's history was in 1871 when 500 white men stormed into a Chinese uh, immigrant community and lynched at least 20 uh, Chinese men and boys and also killed and robbed many others. So this happened before the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was in 1882. This is a country whose first act of law was to say that you could only be a naturalized citizen for the United States if you were a white man free. So this is not a country that's welcomed immigrants. We shouldn't forget the interment of uh, Japanese Americans in concentration camps on the West Coast. I'd like to point out that in Hawaii, where a third of the population is of Japanese ancestry, less than 2,000 were interred during World War II. That's what happens when you have power. And so now this is a big deal uh, because of Atlanta, but this should not be a surprise. Uh, there's always been anti uh, Asian racism in this country, uh, and it's morphed uh, depending on what time period and what group you're talking about. And you can see the unfavorable attitude um, toward Asians on, on this graph. Um, so right now they are the largest immigrant group. And so we should pay attention to it. And we should remember that all the way, uh, actually till today, a basic right of citizenship, the right to vote, has, has not been entrenched in our history. It's not until 1879 that the courts declared Native Americans human. Um, in the 1800s, Chinese were not allowed to testify in court against white people because they weren't considered human enough to dare to come in and say anything about a white person. You can see it's really not until the 20s, actually even after this, that uh, Native Americans were allowed to vote. Uh, not till the 50s that uh, people with Asian ancestry had the right to become citizens. And of course, even though we had a major victory in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, uh, we've certainly had major voter suppression since then. So we are a country that has not fully recognized the basic civil rights and rights of citizens for most people in this country. Um, again, if we think about what's going on and, and why people are healthy or not, 
just this is looking at wealth. And I just want to point out that white people without a college degree have more wealth than either Blacks or Latinx Native Americans aren't on this picture, but I could put them on here. Uh, so what are we saying when you talk about racism? It's a real problem. This is looking at uh, COVID deaths. Um, and you can see that I don't care how you do the data, Black and Native American are always there, one and two. Um, but even here, you have to be careful. For example, in the Bay Area, uh, especially some of the early data, some of the highest death rates uh, from COVID were among uh, Asians. So you have to be careful when you look at national data and, and think carefully. Here's just another view of uh, how more likely uh, these groups are to die than white Americans. Um, and again, looking at cases and deaths. Um, so when we talk about structural racism, it's a real thing. You don't have to consciously be aware of the fact that you're going into Asian uh, uh, spas and shooting Asian women. You can pretend that you're going there for some other reason. That's what we mean by structural racism. It's baked in. It's like the racism operates whether you consciously are aware of it or not. I consider it like a mold. If you make a cake batter and, and your mold is a mold of uh, a sheet cake, that's the way the cake comes out. If your mold is, is, is a butt cake, your cake comes out that way. So with structural racism, it's the mold that our society makes that determines what kind of education people get, what kind of water rights they get, what kind of ability to vote that they get. And it's that process of creating those racist structures based on white supremacy that determines people's health. So when the pandemic first started, uh, people were worried about uh, these death rates, and they immediately went to these normal things that we go to, hypertension, diabetes, obesity. I'm a physician. It's not that these things are not important in terms of whether one is likely to have trouble with COVID or other kinds of uh, secondary diseases, but this is what is really going on with COVID that's clear now. It's structural racism. Who has to work face-to-face -face with the public and who gets to work remote? Who has to take public transportation to work and who has a car or stays home remote? Who's incarcerated, whether you're incarcerated in a local jail or a federal jail or an ICE detention home, and who stays home? Who is in nursing homes and poor quality nursing homes that are understaffed? Who's forced to work in essential low-paid jobs? Who is more likely to be unhoused? So when you look at these structural factors for who is contracting and dying from COVID, we see these factors are more important even than the individual factors that may exist. And I always think of this cartoon because on one hand it says you're gonna work in unsafe conditions. We're not gonna give you PPE. We're not gonna give you a mask. And if you refuse to work, we're gonna starve you to death and not pay you at all. So this is a strange country where the reality is people didn't have a choice but to go to work. I'll look at these later. So when we, when we think about communities that have been hard hit by COVID, we, these are the same communities that have bad air quality, that have trouble walking uh, with parks, that, that have bad uh, housing stock, uh, that have uh, food deserts. These same problems are here. This is just a look at how people are that were incarcerated. Um, the other thing I wanna say, this is important. No one, should be surprised that people of color don't trust white folks. But that is not the reason or explanation, not the whole explanation of why we see differences in vaccine uptake. 
This is Kaiser. They've been following this for some time. And you can see here that the people who definitely will not get COVID for this particular time period was the same for blacks and whites. Uh, actually, the group that's the most vaccine hesitant have been white male Republicans. So when we ask ourselves, what can we do to get people vaccinated? We know populations are moving and more willing to get vaccinated, but you still have to have it done in an equitable fashion, and we haven't seen that. So we have a problem in this country and a problem in the world. We, we uh, are in a country that does not have a good public health system. Less than a third of our public health systems even have an epidemiologist on staff. Uh, when we look at the impact of COVID, the race and ethnicity data, and certainly our class data is often missing. Uh, we, we have not had a good surveillance system to keep track of this. We are not doing what we need to do. And we're trying to vaccinate all Americans and we're, we're refusing to vaccinate the global South, which will come back to bite us. So we have some solutions. I, again, I'm not gonna read through all of these. I think the solutions are, are pretty clear. We have to pay attention to all these stages of life. What are we doing early stages of life? Do we, do we make sure our kids don't starve? We're talking about a care package that lifts half the children out of poverty. We should be asking ourselves, why do we have any children living in poverty in this, the richest country in the land? Why do we have people going in debt to get an education? What kind of employment and working conditions do we fight for? Do we make sure that people are paid what they deserve to be paid? And by the way, $15 an hour is not enough. It's not a living wage. What are we doing about housing? We should have no one unhoused. Um, and what are we doing about racism? This is not a question of kumbaya moments. I'm not against that. I'm not against truth and reconciliation, but you gotta have truth before you can have reconciliation. And I will be remiss if I didn't say this. In the first 100 days, I know this is not going to happen, but it could happen. In the first 100 days, our president should have been putting in Medicare for all if we're really going to tackle this pandemic. So let me just stop here and say what, what we should be doing. We need to pay attention to all of these issues, all of us. We need to learn our history and other people's history. We need to talk about racism clearly, and we need to understand it in all of its nuances. So then you won't be, there's not a black person in this country that's surprised that Asian women get murdered. There might be some white people that are surprised, but they're not any black person or Puerto Rican person or Mexican person. We have to understand where racism is present. That's easy, it's present everywhere. How exactly is it operating? Because if you don't know how exactly it's operating, you can't stop it, you can't dismantle it. We have to understand the systems and we have to be good at deciphering the structures that perpetuate white supremacy and oppression. This is a, one of my favorite quotes from King and uh, it's an homage to Breonna Taylor. Rarely do we find men who are willing to engage in hard, solid thinking. There's an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. Here's some other great books that people ought to be reading about health and healthcare in our country. And like, I'll make sure that these slides get sent to the organizers so you all can get them at a later date and check out some of these great books. So the challenges we face as Americans are the same challenges we face in the world. And the root causes of the problem are the same. Capitalism that is destroying the planet, climate change that is going to increase people fleeing and migrating all over the world uh, and, and threaten their livelihood and their ability to stay alive. Uh, 
climate change that continues to produce pandemics. We will have another coronavirus pandemic. It'll be another virus. Um, and if we aren't aware of these problems and we don't begin to address the underlying causes, then we'll be here uh, having these same conversations in 10, 15, or 20 years. Thank you so much, Linda. Um, that is a great call to action. And I, I wanted to invite Michael and Judy to come back for the Q&A. Well, we've gotten to some roots and um, I wanted to um, just start to ask, given what all the um, amazing history and examples you've given us, um, so how do we go about an honest accounting and an honest history? Because it's kind of a line that goes through everyone's talks in terms of needing this. So I was just gonna mention, um, it's been kind of alluded to and Michael mentioned it, but last month, Representative Barbara Lee and Senator Cory Booker reintroduced the legislation to form a truth um, racial hearing and transformation commission to create a means to have the urgent unmet need for basically an honest um, history and an honest accounting. And the commission will examine the effects of slavery, institutional racism and discrimination against people of color and how our imp history impacts laws and policies today. So I just wanted to open it up um, to you all uh, to ask basically what are, what are your thoughts for truth, reconciliation and reparations ultimately? Um, well, we've done this before. We haven't done the kind of a global national effort that, for example, South Africa did. But but I can name some things. You know, we we have in my lifetime the Kerner Commission. If you read, if you actually read the Kerner Commission, it, it was quite eloquent. It said we have two two countries that are apart, and if we don't stop discriminating against Black people, these these problems will continue. Um, we have had uh, commissions locally around Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Chicago in 1919 and 1920, when there were riots uh, of white people coming into the Black community, killing people. Uh, there were commissions then that, again, were very clear and very eloquent uh, in terms of what, why it existed and what happened. So I don't think, I think you have to have truth. I understand that. But you can't really have reconciliation without addressing the structure. So can we have reconciliation if we don't get rid of the Electoral College? I don't think so. Okay, That's a basically an undemocratic structure that was put up there to prop up white supremacy. So how can we have reconciliation if we're not willing to get rid of that? Um, how can we have reconciliation if we're not willing to say that people who work every day uh, shouldn't be living in poverty? You know, If, if you're working what we consider a full-time job, how do we allow that person to make uh, poverty wages? Um, and, and so uh, I think there has to be a fundamental desire to dismantle racism and dismantle oppression and then assemble and build different kinds of structures with different kinds of values. Um, and so, so truth and reconciliation is not enough for me. Judy, Michael, do you have comments on that? Uh, it's Michael. Um, I'd say just give me my country back and we'll call it even. Uh, <laughs> Is Deb Holland going to be doing <laughs> And And uh, I don't want to get Deb in, Deb in trouble. She's, she's, got, she's got more than a full plate already to deal with. Um, you know, I, I think s somehow we really need some moral leadership 
Um, I guess two things come to mind. One is the we live in it. We live. We, the bottom line is that we live in a nation where people value things and they more than they do people. Um, and 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 in my grandfather's words, um, he would say, "Been long gone," but he would say, "This nation values the God Almighty dollar." Um, and um, and again, that reflects that the fact that there are people in this country who, who value things more than people. And until we get to the point where we have a conversation, a moral conversation, not just a political, it's, it's gotta be a, a conversation on a number of levels. But I think without some sort of moral uh, basis for the conversation um, as to who are we, what are we, and what do we really value um, and what kind of nation and world do we want, do we, do we wish to live in? Because other countries have already, you know, um, it, it, the point was made other, you know, there are other countries who, who have made different choices and have different economic systems that, that appear to be more equitable, more fair, and, and their citizens are, are more content and happier and, and, and better better off than, than we are in this country, which we like to think, well, you know, we're, we're number one in all this sort of rah-rah stuff, which doesn't hold water. Thank you. Judy? Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with, with everything that's been said. I think I would just, the parts I would just emphasize is that, you know, there, to have truth and reconciliation, we all have to tell the truth. So many of us have been telling the truth, but not all of us have been telling the truth. And so people have to understand the truth, learn the history, and then actually work toward it. And I think, I think Michael's point about uh, focusing and grounding us in, re in relationships uh, and, and focusing on that gets us to that reconciliation point and people have to desire that. And that hasn't been true. So people aren't actually speaking the truth and some people don't even know the truth. They're, they're denying the truth. So I think that's, that's a big piece of it. Um, and other than that, I'll just, I, agree with everything else that's been said. I don't want to want to uh, reemphasize it. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, you know, Judy, um, one thing that struck me because you mentioned um, the Black Women's Patient Family and Advisory Commission, that it's honest input from Black women. And it really struck me because I thought it, it's really the honest part needs to come probably from the other side, <laughs> you know, in the sense of just the idea of that the wording that you used, I just thought was really interesting in terms of um, the fundamental aspect of honesty being needed to even begin to start the conversation. Um, I, oh, I see some questions here. So this one is to Judy. So it is regarding the years it took to organize the Reproductive Justice Summit. What are the high level barriers you faced in organizing the summit, especially with different, oh, sorry, this is a problem of glasses, especially with different partners in varying places of power. So the, San, oh, the San Francisco Department of Public Health, yes. And what were some strategies that worked? That, that's, a, that's a great question. It did take us a couple of years to actually get this summit off the ground. <laughs> um, and some of the delays were, were COVID related delays. It started off being an in-person summit and we ended up turning it completely virtual. Um, I will say that the commitment from all of the partners was strong. So I think that we started off with um, people who were 
were working in partnership and, and had collaborated before. So many of us who were working together had collaborated, um, many of us individuals and organizations had collaborated before um, in different ways. And so I think we, we started off with a strong desire to um, put together uh, this, this, this summit and had organizational support from all levels of our organization to say, this is, this is an important issue. Um, that we needed to do. So I think the the desire was there from the very beginning, and there were some um, there was some commitment from for some resources to to do this. And I think that um, so I think in terms of barriers that we faced, you know, initially we we started off very strong. I think that the challenges that sort of evolved as you go through it, when we as I sort of read the definition of reproductive justice, you know, reproductive justice, because it was framed and started as a concept around um, this, this making sure we have rights around our, our health and especially because it was a concept that was founded by black women because we were specifically left out. Our voices were not heard. This was about making sure black women were at the table and other people who had been marginalized were at the table um, and uh, that, that people had autonomy around their voices, especially because the reproductive movement was founded on the, the, the um, the research that was done on um, indigenous and black women, right? So we know that, that the gynecology and obstetrics was, was founded on um, research that was done on indigenous and enslaved women. And so being able to have black women at the table doing this, this work, I think that was probably the biggest challenge. So it really wasn't a high level barrier. It was more of a barrier. And I don't wanna say barrier, but more of a point of conversation with this very diverse committee about how do we um, think about making sure Black women were the ones leading this conversation and Black women were the ones um, uh, developing the content uh, when there were other people uh, uh, who wanted to be very, very engaged in the content planning. And so when you normally think about a, a, a conference or a summit, you ha we have very, very diverse perspectives in the content planning. and. Uh, we, we had to have very, very deep conversations about how do we really think about this content planning and what is the purpose of this and how do we center this so that uh, Black women's voices are heard and centered in this conversation in the planning. And so that I think was, was I won't say a barrier, but I think it was a point of, um, a pivoting point to understand that that, was, that needed to be centered um, and that was critical. And once we got to there, then other things sort of opened up. I think the, the barriers sort of more the, the logistical barriers became making sure that you have the right people attending and how do you do that with something that was constantly moving with COVID happening, you know, so the, 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 um, and the political barriers, we wanted to make sure that we had the right people attending. So bringing um, community members, which was, you know, that thing about making sure we had, we paid for community members, we, we applied for a grant. So we were funded with through a grant to make sure we had resources for community members to attend um, and then making sure providers had time away from their jobs to come and getting providers schedules cleared with enough time so that they could actually show up um, so that their voices could be in, in the mix. And so that, that was logistically challenging, I would say. And I think those are the those were the barriers because those are the voices that you needed to have at the table, and the youth voices were important too. And so uh, the school district helped with that a lot. So we didn't. I don't. I would say that was not as big of a barrier. Um, but I think those are those are those are um, 
logistical things <laughs> that made it challenging. And, but they were so important. They really key was making sure that enough of the right people were there so that the conversations could be rich enough um, and deep enough. And that was our commitment was to not put something on where uh, it was, it just had providers or it just had certain types of people. We wanted to make sure that every conversation had as many mixtures of people um, so that it was rich and, and the, that the conversations at the actual summit had a balance. Um, and fortunately, the organizing sort of, once we got our organized group organized, some of those logistics started to, to um, clear up. We were just kept ourselves centered with our goal and our mission. And that, that really helped. Um, I, I see, oh, wait, there's, this is, hold on. There's, um, there's a question about, and I see Anne Salinas, I see your question, but I thought it might be a good one to have more at the end. Um, in addition to Medicare for all, it seems that we also need guaranteed jobs for all. Any, any comments? Absolutely. We need to, we need to deconstruct our, our economy. Uh, there are so many things in the world, including in this country that need to be done. Uh, it's, it's not that we lack work that needs to be done. Uh, we lack a, a will to pay and compensate for that work. Uh, but let me be clear while we're waiting for uh, good jobs, uh, I believe in guaranteed income. I, you know, I, I, I'm 72. I remember when I was young uh, that women, black women on welfare were calling for guaranteed income. So that's what we need. Um, so uh, th those are just some of the beginning, but, but, but fundamentally, I want to be clear because we, we've we've won victories before and have lost ground on that, like we see now with voter suppression. We have to secure our democracy. In my mind, the two most critical things are the ability to to learn. And I don't just mean the ability to go to school and get a degree; that's important. But the, but the ability to learn your history, your truth, to talk to people, and the ability to secure democracy. And so this, this is something that we don't have in the United States. Uh, we, we are unable to secure our democracy. And it's not just because of January 6th, uh, though that is just one example of it. And without that, we can't secure any other kind of programs. Every time we've made progress, ending shadow slavery, black men getting the right to vote, how long did that last? Okay, and, and today we have less of a right to vote than we did in the immediate aftermath of, of the Civil War. So. Uh, yes, we need good jobs. But we, we really need to come together and secure control of our country um, and and address the history and, and right the historic wrongs that have been uh, perpetrated by a small group of people. Michael, did you have a comment on that? I think what, what I wanted to pick up on was, you know, um, that there in terms of, um, I saw one of the questions and in, in terms of what gives me hope, I think, you know, if, if we can't learn from what we're experiencing now, um, not, not just communities of color, but if the general populace can't learn, um, given, given the COVID, COVID pandemic, given, given the, 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 the rise of white supremacy, given, given all of this, if, if there are not enough people in this country to, 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 be, to recognize that, to own it, and, and, and to mobilize around this, I'm not sure what can really change things. Um, and we will end up, we will end up losing 
uh, what we have. And, and, and it's not, it's not just going to be the bottom line. It's not just going to be people of color who are losing this nation will lose. We will lose the foundation um, in as inadequate as it is. It is what we have. And it, it is what has inspired and brought hope to people. And, and we will lose that. And I don't, and I just hope, you know, that the younger generation, and I think there is hope for the younger generation. Some of them are not caught up in, in have, have not bought the farm, have not been, been totally um, uh, corrupted in terms of their thinking. And, and they seem to be motivated and, and invigorated and, and recognize that their, their lives, their future, given, given uh, global warming, and given decisions that have been made in the past by by the powerful and the privileged do not serve them and do not serve any of us well. Thank you. Judy, did you want to comment on any of that? I was just I I was thinking about this comment about what gives me hope and I, you know, I it's mixture when you were Michael you were I was reflecting on what you just said about some of the younger generation some of them do give me a lot of hope but I think I'm I'm in more I am also just encouraged when when I see us working you know um just across our across our differences and when I see us uh just aligning you know the as you know my sister Linda Ray when she was sharing in her slides about all of the different um all of our different communities that have been that have been that have been challenged, you know, have, have had the, all of the oppression that's happened to all of us. And when we start to work, we're working together. And when our communities are working together, I'm, I'm, that always gives me hope when I see um, us working together as opposed to trying to silo ourselves. And so um, not feeling like I'm saying it as well as I, as I want to, but I think I feel hope and power when I feel like we're working together and not trying to compete based on, a, you know, this oppression Olympics that some people try to try to pull, you know, I always feel more hopeful when we're doing this together, when we're in this conversation together, when we're, when we're working to sort of say, how do we, how do we work together and, and pull ourselves, um, support each other in a different way. Um, so that was, so Michael and um, Judy addressed the question that was in it. Um, so maybe I will give um, Linda, the last word about what gives you hope today? Well, I think that uh, history gives me hope. Um, they tried to exterminate indigenous people on the hemisphere and they failed. They're still here. Uh, they tried to grind people that were enslaved into the earth and we're still here. Uh, so they, they, they tried to really destroy us as subhumans. Um, and, and we survive uh, and we continue to fight and resist. So yes, uh, uh, young people give me hope, uh, but young people are always young and they always rise up to resist. Um, we have a lot of challenges that we didn't have before. It's not the same struggle. It's a much more difficult struggle. I think climate change is a, is a existential threat to the planet or at least to the human species of the planet. Uh, but I am hopeful because we've survived this long and because we continue to resist. Uh, and to the extent that we not only don't work in silos, but to the extent that we understand the common root, the common structural root, if you will, of our oppression and our pain and our suffering, 
to that extent, then we have some hope of dismantling that cause of our pain and suffering. Thank you. Well, I wanted to also just um, before we end, just see if there's anything that has not been said that you want to leave folks with, um, just to give you all an opportunity um, to have any other words. You just were give people so much to reflect on and um, we're so appreciative to bring this content to the viewers. And I know that uh, folks um, uh, who are on can also know that all of this content will be available on YouTube um, and UCTV afterwards. So you can get the word out so that uh, many others can um, hear these amazing presentations. Um, so before I turn it over to Anne-Marie, Judy or Linda or Michael, is there any last words you wanna leave us with? Yeah, Patrice, this, this is Michael. And um, having, having obviously uh, an investment in the Bay Area uh, going back a number of years, I, I just wanted to, to just mention something that, that's occurring right now that really cuts across all of the conversation we, we're having now. And that is in, at Point Reyes, uh, National Seashore Park, the National Park Service is um, in the process of uh, reviewing and possibly adopting an amendment to the general management plan that they have that would allow continued and expanded ranching activities uh, at, at the National Seashore Park. And, um, and one of the things, just as a point of reference, is that in fact, this is is uh, Miwok, uh, Miwok originally ancestral Miwok territory, and um, and um, it it has there's some sig significant plans that are being proposed that that cuts across public health, that cuts across access of communities of color, um, and um, I think there's going to uh, going to be a, there's a need to for for those of us who are concerned about these issues. To begin to pay attention to that that topic and that issue, so I'm just going to mention that. Be be happy to share information at some point um, in the future. Thank you, and you could because we can we have an opportunity to if there's other uh, resources like that that we can put up on the website at UCSF as part of this series. So we'd be delighted to share that as that unfolds. And good public health um, is protect the land I'm, and protect the people. You know, it, you just from your your presentation, it just the idea that people could think those are separate <laughs> is, um, yeah. Thank you so much, um, Judy or Linda. Anything that you want to add before we close? When we fight, we have a chance of winning. So it just means people have to. Go back and fight for what you believe in. Thank you. That's great. I, I agree. Just lift up everything that's been said. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Lift up, lift up all that's been said. Stay in relationship. Yes. You have to stay in relationship. With people and the land. With people and, and the land. That's right. And um, with that, I will once again, thank you all so much. And especially I wanna acknowledge Linda, it's very late where you are. So thank you for staying up to be with us. And I'm going to turn it back over to Anne-Marie. Um, 
And I know there's like rave reviews here from in the chat. So thank you all so much. And Anne-Marie will, will bring us home. Yes. Wow. Thank you so much, um, uh, Michael, Linda Ray, Judy. This was um, a really, um, it was an incredible session. Um, so thank you. Um, I, we've, I feel like um, this really began an important conversation uh, together that I'm really hoping will continue after tonight. As um, Patrice mentioned, this, convert, this whole session will be taped and made available through UCTV and YouTube. Uh, we're happy to post additional resources um, you know, on our websites. Um, so with that, and mindful of the time, um, I'd like to encourage everyone to stay in touch. If you have additional questions, please reach out to um, us to our wonderful, um, to our uh, inspiring colleagues who've been so generous with their time and sharing their, um, their hopes, their vision, their experience. Um, and we will um, help facilitate you get connected. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.